If you're fascinated by the darker sides of humanity, join us every week on our podcast, Serial Killers, where we go deep into notorious true crime cases. With significant research and careful analysis, we examine the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Follow Serial Killers wherever you get your podcasts and get new episodes every Monday. Hi, I'm Blair Bathory, and this is the Something Scary Podcast. Happy 2023. I hope you all had an amazing holiday. Everyone here at Something Scary enjoyed a week off. But now we're so excited about what 2023 holds. So many of us go into the new year with a positive attitude, hope, and lots of resolutions. We make the choice to be better human beings who are kinder to one another. But we all have our inner demons. Good intentions for a fresh start can quickly turn into laziness, resentment, and even seeking revenge for those who have wronged you. And when those inner demons are uncaged, there's no telling the damage you can cause. First, a mother's biggest fear, followed by dark secrets buried. Then, who's the real victim? Finally, in our featured story, a South African cryptid legend. So, wanna hear something scary? The demon in all of us. You always want the best for your children, but it's hard to steer them in the right direction when they're under an evil influence. Like in this story inspired by true events from Lydia Bird. I grew up in a small town in England where nothing much really happened until I was five years old. That was when everything changed and it ended up being the most difficult year of my family's life. It was New Year's morning. Mom came into the room and it was a disaster. I hadn't slept all night and there was lipstick all over the walls and furniture. She was furious, but I told her it wasn't me. I blamed it on my friend, Julia. The thing was, I hadn't had a friend to sleep over that night. In fact, I barely had any friends at all, except for a neighbor down the street who occasionally came over to play with my dolls. I was an only child and a bit of a loner, so I was always picked on at school. My parents and teacher had determined that Julia was my imaginary friend. She wasn't imaginary to me. She was loyal, always sticking by my side. Julia had straight black hair with hot pink streaks. She had a kind face and big blue eyes. Huge, almost oversized. Eventually, the adults in my life decided having an imaginary friend was natural and probably a good thing for me. My mom did, however, think it was unusual since I had never met anyone named Julia, nor knew anyone with pink streaks in their hair. But she had to let that go and permitted me to play with her, since she was now my only friend. Julia didn't like my neighborhood friend, Lizzie, after she threw one of my dolls on the floor, so I stopped playing with her altogether. We were two peas in a pod, Julia and I, constantly playing in my room. We would have tea parties, and I would tell her all about my days at school, 
One day, my mom walked past my room and heard me talking in a low, grumbled voice to Julia. She never did tell me what I said, but whatever it was, it shook her to her core. It prompted more meetings with the school and my doctor. I remember my mom didn't want to be left alone in the same room with me. If my father wasn't there with us, she would have my aunt come over. All because of whatever it was I whispered. She was truly frightened. I could see it, even in the way she looked at me. A few weeks later, just before bedtime, my mom wouldn't let me have some sweets I wanted and I slapped her. She stared at me in shock. She scolded me and I told my mom that I didn't care because Julia was my mommy and not her and that one day she was going to take me away from her. My mom responded by telling Julia it was time to leave. She shouted all around me, telling Julia she wasn't welcome and that I was her child. The next day, my aunt came to pick me up. They told me it would be good for me and my parents to have a quick break from each other. She took me to her friend's house who had a daughter my age named Eve. We played for hours while my aunt and her friend had coffee and chatted. After that day, I never spoke of Julia again. My entire family was relieved, hoping things would just go back to normal. A few weeks later, my aunt went to her friend's house again. Her friend was aggravated. Whenever she told Eve it was time to go to sleep, Eve shouted back telling her that her new friend said that she was her mommy now. My aunt hesitated and asked what her friend's name was. Her blood ran cold when her friend said the name, Julia. It's been years now and I'm at university. Last week I was shopping with my mom when I saw Eve for the first time in ages. For some reason, I felt a massive connection to her as if we were linked somehow. I could tell we both felt it, but were scared to say anything. I knew in that instant I wasn't crazy and Julia was not an imaginary friend. Julia was real. She had tortured two families that we knew of and possibly many, many more. Even worse than the deluge of memories that came flooding back was the knowledge she was likely still out there. And just what if she had unfinished business and decided to come back? Just then I saw a flash of hot pink and my blood froze. Thankfully, it was just a child wearing a woolly hat. But I know deep down that one day that hot pink will be a streak in otherwise black hair that belongs to something made of evil. Did you ever have an imaginary friend growing up? Was it good or bad? Do they still visit you today? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, 
You can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It can be difficult to count our blessings, particularly when instead they are seen as a curse. Like in this story inspired by Colin Austed. Ever since I was little, I've had the ability to see through the ground. I can see everything from sewer pipes to subway cars rushing right under my feet. It's as if I'm walking on a glass ceiling. My mother always called it a gift. That gift nearly drove me insane, so I did everything I could to suppress it. It wasn't till I was older and my mother passed away that I decided to embrace my gift. I sobered up and became a police detective. I used my talent to help find the dead. My first case was a young woman that had gone missing about a month earlier, and her body had never been found. So I went out on my own to find the last place she had been seen, a jogging trail near the park. For more than an hour, I kept my head down as I scanned the earth beneath me. I saw a spider's web of tree roots that crisscrossed the ground, along with all of the rocks a few skeletons of long dead animals, and the occasional canister of bio-waste. It was when the sun began to set that I found her. She was buried in a shallow grave, just off the jogging path. She lay face down with her arms behind her back, but what made my blood run cold was how her neck was positioned. It was twisted to the side, and she seemed to be looking right at me through her prison. When I reached her, I placed my hand over the grave. Don't worry, you'll be home soon, I whispered. I pulled out my radio and called in the finding, telling the dispatcher that I had been out for a jog and I found a place where the dirt had been disturbed. Half an hour later, a forensics team and my captain arrived. They noted that it appeared that a necklace had been ripped off her neck. That Emma was too close to home for me. It brought back too many memories I wasn't ready to welcome. Soon, the young woman was removed and carted off to the morgue. I went home, tried to sleep. Even though I'd cleaned up my life, this one made it even harder to get any rest. The next morning, I got a text. Another missing person, this one just around the corner from me. A white female, mid-twenties, had gone missing walking her dog. The dog was found alive and chained to a nearby park bench. The woman was last seen talking to a man in a white minivan. I sighed, and after I had chugged the last of my coffee, I hurried out to the crime scene. When I arrived, I found a few officers interviewing civilians and a scruffy man holding the leash of a black lab nearby. I asked an officer if there was anything new, but he shook his head. It was just another snatch and grab. The young lady was last seen walking her dog by that guy over there. He jerked his head to the man with the lab. He said the young woman was talking to a guy who needed help loading a roll of carpet into his van. The officer consulted his notes and read aloud, white van with a lot of graffiti on it. Most likely a stolen van that the perp probably swapped out once he was away from the area. Later that day, I went by the cemetery to see my mom. As I walked through the sea of gray headstones and monuments, I tried hard not to look down. The last thing I needed was to see the dead stacked up on top of each other. 
When I reached my mom's headstone, I brushed away some fallen leaves. I could see her through the layers of dirt, stone, and wood that was now my mom's home. Hey, mom, I said. Things have been getting pretty crazy up here, and I found another one. I paused and then said, I wish I could have used it to find you, but I was too afraid then. As I turned to leave, in the distance, I saw what looked like a white van with graffiti. No, I shook my head. I texted the captain to get a team down there stat. I kissed my mom's headstone before making my way to the suspicious van. In minutes, the van had a small army of officers searching the property nearby. It had been wedged between a pair of trees and an old shed that had seen better days. My captain shook his head. They searched the van, but there was no sign of any carpet or bodies being in the back. I stepped in to explore. After just a moment of searching, I called out. Somebody get me a drill and a crowbar! Confused, my captain yelled, What the hell for? But there it was, clear as day, to me anyway. Under the floor was what looked like a square section that had been cut out and then bolted down with deck screws. A hidden compartment. After a bit of a struggle, we managed to get the cover off and out of the van. In the hidden compartment, all tangled together, were dozens of women's necklaces. I jumped out of the van and threw up. Memories of my mom flooding back. How she went missing. How we'd never found her favorite locket. I wiped my mouth and looked again into the box. And there it was. I choked on a sob as I picked it up. I turned the golden heart over just to be sure and there it was engraved on the back the word, Mom. I'd given it to her just weeks before she was murdered. And now all these years later, I could finally start the process of bringing her killer to justice. Have you ever followed your instincts or special gifts to investigate? What did you discover? Was it something scary? Tell us about it by sending us an email at somethingscary@snarl.com. Being caught red-handed is often all that is needed to prove guilt. But things aren't always as cut and dry as they seem, such as in this story from Janine Pipe. I work as a warden in a juvenile detention center. As you can imagine, I meet some very troubled kids. I don't like to think of them as bad, even the ones here on homicide charges. More like they've made a bad decision and we can help them learn how to make better choices. I've seen adults who literally epitomize evil, but never a child. Until I met West, that is. West was a straight-A student from a loving nuclear family with no history of any kind of mental illness or propensity for violence before being convicted of multiple homicide. She had no answers, no explanations for what she'd done. She had refused to speak to police or lawyers, shrinks or staff at the faculty about the incident. Not just no comment, but completely zoned out. Otherwise, she was a model prisoner, albeit a rather sad one. She showed no other signs of being a danger to others, gave nothing away subconsciously through art or writing, no doodles depicting homicidal tendencies, no dubious search engine history. 
no sudden outburst in group therapy, the only session where she sat with her head down, long dark hair covering her face. Something must have happened that day to make an otherwise destined for sainthood 14-year-old girl slaughter her entire family. And I finally figured out why. I have no idea why it revealed itself that particular day. West would always seem to tune out when the massacre was mentioned. It wasn't that she got mad or upset and wouldn't speak. It was almost as if she wasn't there. The medical professionals believe it was a coping mechanism that her mind would shut down to keep from remembering what she'd done. And everyone believed that, what she had done. She had after all been caught in the act by a neighbor and remained in sit you as the police attended and arrested her. There could be no denying it when she was literally red-handed from all the blood. I was making routine rounds that morning. At 5.30 a.m., most of the girls are still fast asleep. There will always be a few who either haven't slept at all or who wake up super early. But Wes wasn't usually one of them, so I was surprised to see her sitting upright on her cot. Even worse was the horrific stench emanating from her cell. My immediate thought was she must be sick. For her to be awake and to have caused that nauseating odor, she must have been up all night with an upset stomach. I was actually annoyed no one had noticed and also a little worried. But as I entered the small room and switched on the light, the toilet was clean as always, and there was no sign of the bed or West being soiled. West? I called over to her, approaching carefully. She might not be in supermax, but her family hadn't almost decapitated themselves. I edged my way over to the cot, the smell getting stronger. It reminded me of a rotten egg. It got so bad, I had to put one hand over my nose. Still, Wes didn't reply, didn't move an inch. She was sat up, but with her head down like in therapy, her long, dark hair forming a curtain over her face. I was starting to worry. My free hand hovered over the emergency button on my radio. I was close now. The cell room was not exactly sprawling and suddenly her head jerked back and her hair moved away from the face. Yes, the face, not her face. Because what was under Wes's hair, where her pretty yet unhappy visage should have been, there was a blank canvas. No features, no definition, no West. There was another jerky movement and this time I screamed as West's neck bent backwards. The blank face was now unnaturally parallel with the ceiling. This time, I hit the emergency button too, knowing help would be with me within seconds. And it was literally seconds before my colleagues arrived that her head, still impossibly bent backwards, turned without its face towards me and I knew, even though it had no eyes, it was looking right at me. Then, in the split second before the guards reached us, she was west again, head and neck now normal, face complete with sad, almost guilty expression. They still took her to the medical wing to be checked over. And as I was helping wheel the gurney, she whispered to me, This time you were lucky. Don't be there when he comes back. I went straight to the governor and quit. I don't know what I witnessed in that room, but I do know it was evil. Pure evil. And I don't want to be around when it makes another appearance.
Have you ever experienced something unexplainable? Did you ever question the face you were looking into? In our final story, join my co-host Stephanie as she tells the tale of a South African urban legend inspired by Ba, animated over on our YouTube channel now. Before we get started, have you checked out our merch? We have some super cool cozy hoodies and we have a writers and artist journal. Check it out at somethingscary.com. Deep in the caves of South Africa, hide demons that only the brave dare to encounter. The brave or those who don't care if they live or die. Ina was thrilled to be making her first trip to South Africa. She would be joining two other scientists from Cape Town University to research an arid biodiversity hotspot near Richards Field. Adan and Johan, who had been studying the area for a year, said the spot was believed to be magical and there were rumors of hidden treasure in the nearby caves. As expected, the trek to Retrosfield was very difficult due to the terrain. By day three, the thin air was affecting Johan. He had been hallucinating and had become paranoid, convinced they were being tracked. Ina followed Johan to the cliff. He took a step too close to the edge and toppled over. As he hopelessly begged for help, he could see something unexpected in Ina's eyes. It was clear she had no intention of pulling him up. He fell to his death just before Adan made it to the edge. Out of breath, bent over, double from running, Adan demanded to know what happened. Ina told Adan that Johan had jumped to his death. He had been driven mad by the journey. Madness was after all one of the symptoms of nearing the beast. They'd been warned by the locals the treasure was guarded by the Grutzlang, a gigantic mix of elephant and serpent that would burst from the bottomless pit of hell to devour anyone that dared to come searching the cave for gold. But Ina just trekked faster up the mountain, no intention of turning back. As she continued on, a glint of yellow twinkled in her eyes, the glint of something impure, something demonic. Adan thought they should turn back, but he had no choice but to follow Ina, not wanting to be left on his own. He had already lost one colleague. He didn't want to lose two. He continued to call out his concerns. Suddenly, Ina turned and grabbed Adan by the collar, shoving him closer toward the edge. Through gritted teeth, she told him, the reason no one who searched for the treasure had returned was because they left the rumors of the devil get in their head and mess with them. Like Johan, Adan just caught his balance before plummeting to his own death. People thought that the closer they got to the gaping cave of hell, the more influence the devil had over them. After witnessing Ina's behavior, Adan was now a true believer. It was clear Ina was under some other influence, but he still didn't want to be alone. They continued on, Adan trailing behind Ina. After a treacherous three more hours in the beating sun, Ina let out an earth-shattering cry. Adan ran to her, determined to help as she was sobbing, but she wasn't upset. Shockingly, there were tears of joy. 
she was smiling. Just ahead, she pointed. She was sure she spotted the cave. She pulled out the photos and saw it was a perfect match. The gaping black hole made it look deep, dangerous. Ina actually believed those before had chickened out or lost their minds. She laughed at Adan's cowardliness and told him he wasn't going to get any of her riches when she retrieved them on her own from the cave. He called after her, saying he just wanted her to be safe. She stormed off into the opening, switching on her headlamp as his voice drowned out behind her. After walking for about 15 minutes, she no longer saw the mouth of the cave. Instead, she began to see something bright. The place was full of glowing precious stones and gold. No sooner did she arrive, the walls around her shook her off her feet and the ground cracked open. Through fiery smoke slithered out the grusling, nine feet long, as big as a house. The head of an elephant with sharp tusks at the side of its mouth and a long serpent-like body. Ina's heart was pounding at the grusling slid around her. She was so struck with fear, she couldn't even run. It constricted around her body and crushed her bones. As blood dripped out from her nose and ears, she noticed something. Her eyes went wide as if she was trying to speak. She tried to point, but her arms were pinned to her side. Even if they weren't, her bones no longer existed to lift them up. What she saw was Adan. He wasn't even attempting to help her. Instead, he was taking handfuls of jewels and shoving them into his pockets. He headed back out of the cave before Ina even took her last breath. I'm alive, he thought. And I got a few handfuls of treasure. Pleased with himself, he made his way back down the mountain. A glint of yellow shimmered in his eyes. This week's podcast stories were edited by Sarah Lukasiewicz, Janine Pipe, and Stephanie Strange. Narration by Blair Bathory and Stephanie Strange. Audio edited and mixed by Fitz Harris. Additional audio editing by Calvin Linderman. Art and graphics by Irma Richardson. Produced by Anna Villalobos. Executive produced by Gail Gilman. Music by Sapphire Sindalo and Calvin Linderman. If you have a story you'd like to submit, send me an email at somethingscary@snarl.com. Don't forget to watch the video version of Something Scary over at youtube.com snarled. And if you'd like to support the show and everything we do at Snarled, join our Patreon at patreon.com snarled. Until next time, my spooky friends, sweet screams. <laughs>